We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today, we're going to share a classic interview with April Yamasaki. She's the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind and Strength. The book published by Herald Press. We'll also hear from Joel Griffith. He's a research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the ugly truth about socialism and who's responsible for standing against the tide. Not um, school teachers or professors. She, we'll be talking about how you and I have a role to play. We'll take a look at some of the myths surrounding socialism that make it seem so appealing to those who are currently embracing it. All of that coming up in the next few segments. Well, we are 55 days away from Election Day, November the 3rd. A lot to pray about, a lot to prepare for, a lot to think about. We'll get to that uh, in the program today. But first, thousands have been told to evacuate in Jackson and Coos counties as fires threaten communities large and small in the Rogue River Valley. The Alameda fire that started near Ashland prompted evacuation orders for the cities of Talent, Phoenix, and Medford, home to more than 80,000 fellow Oregonians. The fire started Tuesday morning in Ashland, according to the mayor. Um, uh, he said the uh, fire mostly spared the city, but quickly spread north, cutting a swath of destruction through the small towns of Phoenix and Talent as it made its way to Medford. Well, Ashland's interim city administrator, Adam Hanks, told the mayor and city council in a message earlier on Wednesday that city workers who live in the surrounding region have been hard hit. Many lost their homes. Fires are not at all out in Talent and Phoenix, and the destruction is horribly significant, he said in an email to city leaders, adding that winds are expected to settle as the afternoon approaches. This is the beginning of a very long haul for the region. Well, Mayor um, uh, Medford Mayor Gary Wheeler said the fire spread north from Ashland on Tuesday and has reached the southern edge of his city. Basically, it looks like uh, the Phoenix and Talent are pretty well devastated. It looks like a lot of damage for those little towns. He said the fire swept north along the Bear Creek Greenway, a public path that extends from Ashland to Central Point. The fire is within Medford city limits and burning in the area that is home to the city's youth sports complex. He said it has uh, not spread into residential areas as of yet. But this is a very serious uh, fire, and Oregonians um, are suffering in the south part of the state. Well, in a stunning incident of big technology censorship and religious discrimination, Mobile Causes CEO a terminated Family Research Council's contract one hour before the conservative organization's Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast. Well, the termination based on Family Research Council's uh, religious views prevented the broadcast from reaching thousands of Christian voters with information about the 2020 election. Well, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins, he released a statement saying this. Mobile cause has not only provided yet another example of big tech censorship, but in their desperation to silence those they disagree with, they have now added religious discrimination to their portfolio. 
it is, um, uh, is it a coincidence that a big tech company pulled the plug on us one hour before the second installment of one of the most extensive evangelical voter education and mobilization efforts in this election cycle? The big tech agenda is beyond obvious. Mobile cause views evangelicals and conservatives in general as a political enemy that must be silenced. And so it timed its religious discrimination for maximum effect. Well, he went on from there, but I do want to mention that you can join in by another means. Pray, Vote, Stand is Family Research Council and Family Research Council Actions event that will air online today at 5 o'clock. That's 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 5 o'clock Pacific Time, and you can uh, find that at PrayVoteStand.org. So while there was an effort to silence the, uh, uh, the movement, it has moved online, and you can find that tonight at 5, PrayVoteStand.org. Org, an outreach from the Family Research Council. Well, a U.S. Army veteran who served four tours in Iraq and was severely wounded is lashing out against his image being used on social media. The veteran says his photo being used to promote a story in the Atlantic magazine about President Trump that the vet, the vet believes is false and was made up by Democrats for political gain. I'm just so irritated that they put my image up there because now it looks like the president called me a loser. Bobby uh, Hinline uh, told Fox News, referring to comments attributed to the president regarded wounding, uh, regarding wounded veterans. And they're using that to sell something that they believe in for their agenda. It's not fair to put us veterans as props in the middle of all of that, end quote. Well, last week, The Atlantic published a story in which anonymous sources claimed President Trump has made disparaging remarks about fallen U.S. soldiers and veterans, calling them suckers and losers in 2018. Well, Hinline is the lone survivor of an improvised explosive device blast in Iraq that killed four U.S. soldiers. He now uses his comedy act to spread positivity about veterans' issues. Having never commented on the Atlantic story or Trump's alleged remarks about veterans, Henline was outraged his image was being used to tear down Trump and help Democrat Joe Biden. Uh, Go on what you have uh, with facts, Henline said. If you don't have the power to win on your own merits, Uh, that you have to uh, tear down your opponent, there is a problem. Well, the ACLU is officially furious at the university um, for accepting Nick Sandman, calling it a stain on the school. Well, I'm referring to uh, the uh, Civil Liberties Union's official in Kentucky engaging over the weekend to learn that um, Transylvania University had accepted Nicholas Sandman as a student, calling the move a stain on the institution. Now think about that for a moment. The ACLU is suggesting that this student who was maligned by the media, mischaracterized by the media, who is attempting to go on to his freshman year at university, should not have been admitted For what reason? Not altogether clear, because the things he was accused of having done in those early days by the media, for which he has now successfully uh, sued some, um, should have prevented him from being accepted into a university. Again, the American Civil Liberties Union official in Kentucky was enraged over the weekend to learn that he had, in fact, been accepted at Transylvania University. Um, as a uh, as a student calling the move a stain on the institution. Well, Sandman made headlines in January of 2019 when a Native American activist stood in front of the teen and began chanting in his face during a pro-life rally in Lincoln Memorial in Washington. Sand- Sandman, who was wearing a MAGA hat at the time and is a supporter of the president, held his ground and smiled as the man continued to talk in his face close up. Does anyone else think it's a bit of a stain on Transylvania University for accepting Nick Sandman? 
I'm sure it's a, um, a both sides defense, but it's pretty counter to their mission and another instance of they're not actually being equal sides of an issue. Now, what that issue has to do with his being admission, admitted rather, is of uh, confusing to me, according to uh, this line of, um, of reason. ACLU's uh, Samuel Crankshaw wrote in a sense-removed Facebook post, according to the National Review. Well, following the D.C. confrontation, outlets such as CNN, The Washington Post, and others were accused of purposely casting Sandman and his fellow Covington Catholic high school students as the main aggressors with misleading reporting. Both outlets ultimately reached a legal settlement with Sandman after he sued them for $250 million. Well, AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine study has been put on hold due to suspected adverse reaction in the UK. Well, the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca will put an experimental coronavirus uh, vaccine study on hold in the U.S. after a participant in Britain faced an apparent serious adverse reaction, according to a report. Now, what that means is it will pause while they study whether or not the uh, uh, adverse result was the result of the um, vaccine or that the patient had an underlying condition. The Anglo-Swedish company's standard review process triggered a pause to vaccination uh, to allow review of safety data. That's what the AstraZeneca spokesperson says. Well, the pause is a routine action which has to happen whenever there's a potentially unexplained illness in one of the trials while it's being investigated, ensuring we maintain the highest integrity to our our trials. Rather, Well, AstraZeneca is working to expedite the review of the single event to maximize any potential impact, or rather minimize, on the trial timeline. A suspected serious adverse reaction includes symptoms that require hospitalization, life-threatening illness, and even death. It's suspected the adverse reaction in this case happened in the Phase 2-3 trial underway in Britain. In other developments, the president claims coronavirus vaccines might be delivered very soon. You could have a very big surprise coming up, he says. And Newt Gingrich says search for coronavirus vaccine is making important progress. Pfizer Biotech uh, says potential coronavirus vaccine shows promise in additional data. So there are a number of studies underway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president's approval rating is its highest since June, and that's from a Harris poll. The poll came a day after Rasmussen reported high approval numbers for Trump as well. Trump is making great progress in Florida cities where Hillary did well, putting Camp Biden in a bit of a panic. Well, the in a look at the race, which Biden still leads, the Wall Street Journal notes the country deserves a debate over policy because Mr. Biden is proposing the most left wing agenda of any major party candidate in our time. In our lifetime, rather, the Democratic strategy is to keep Mr. Uh, Trump talking about about Donald J. Trump. Well, the entire Rochester police command staff has retired, done with the anti-police politics. And a study has found that Hollywood is casting uh, light-skinned actors to appeal to a Chinese market. The light-skinned shift only occurred uh, in film genres that the Chinese government typically permits into the Chinese market, such as action movies and big summer blockbusters. U.S. studios increasingly create these films from start to finish with the Chinese market in mind. Ted Cruz points out, 
It's uh, that bad. It's that bad, rather, and worse. Hollywood companies routinely alter the publicity of movies to appeal to the racial biases of Chinese audiences and the Chinese Communist Party. They slice up promotional materials like posters and previews to erase out black actors brazen hypocrisy. Charlie Kirk points out that this is your daily reminder that Disney threatened to pull production from Georgia over a pro-life law banning abortions, but they're perfectly fine with filming Mulan just miles away from Chinese concentration camps in Jingjiang. Well, the Academy Awards is now adding a new category, inclusive rules for the best picture. To be eligible for best picture, a film must meet at least two standards across four categories, on-screen representation, themes and narratives, creative leadership and project team, industry access and opportunities, and audience development. Within each category, a variety of criteria involving the inclusion of people in underrepresented groups, including women, people of color, LGBTQ plus people, and those with cognitive or physical disabilities. Other Oscar categories will not be held to these uh, same standards, but the contenders for Best Picture typically filter down to other feature-length categories. Barry Weiss points out, socialist realism, American style. Well, Colorado schools are calling police uh, on a 12-year-old for having a Nerf gun in his virtual classroom. Now he's uh, attending school from home, and in the background, someone, presumably the teacher, saw a Nerf gun. Well, Elliot's son Isaiah was later suspended for five days and now has a record with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and a mark on his school disciplinary paperwork saying he brought a facsimile of a firearm to school, even though he was in his own home doing a virtual class. The gun was obviously a toy painted black and green with zombie hunter on the side. So there's no mistaking it as a real uh, firearm. David Harson, he points out, what's going on in our country right now is that police shootings have significantly declined over the years and the sacrum uh, mongering over guns and the resulting zero tolerance policies that punish kids for ver- for Nerf toys and such has been a trend for many years. Having lived in Colorado and witnessing the increasing nannyistic inclination of teachers and administrators, I'm not surprised that this transpired in the state, even though gun ownership in El Paso County and nearby Douglas County is probably sky high. But it's the kind of thing that ensnares seven-year-olds in Florida and Virginia, nine-year-olds in Grand Junction and Pittsburgh, fourth graders in New York for two, uh, a two-inch gun, and kindergartners in Maryland. The list is long, and it spares no race, no creed. So uh, keep that in mind, mom and dad. If your kids have a squirt gun somewhere in the house, make sure while they're attending their online classes, they're not visible. Some kids are paying a very high price for being, oh, I don't know, kids. California is seeking to clean up the uh, mess caused by AB5, uh, Assembly Bill 5, Uh, California lawmakers scrambled to do the cleanup after their disastrous Assembly Bill 5 statute, passing a bill last week into law that grants certain gig workers relief from the harmful employment regulations they took effect on the 1st of January. Among those exempted from AB5 are now freelance writers, editors, producers, photographers, translators, and musicians. While it's uh, good that people in these industries will get relief, the harmful effects of the uh, law, the Statutes still persist for thousands of independent workers who lack the resources and the connections they need to lobby for special carve-out treatment. Well, CNN has used a doctored photo of Joe Biden because they didn't want you to see his son had a Washington Redskins hat on. Heaven forbid that we would see what actually happened and decide for ourselves how significant it was or was not. CNN took care of that 
for us. And the university is defending a course, How to Overthrow the State, which requires freshmen to write their own manifesto. That should come in handy when they're trying to get a tech job. Well, the GOP has proposed a $500 billion in targeted virus aid, but Democrats, well, they're uh, the spendthrifts under other circumstances say it's not enough. And President Trump is nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by a Norwegian official citing Israel's UAE peace deal. A memo to Democrats, 1,000 Georgia voters are facing prosecution for casting multiple ballots in June. But of course, that couldn't happen in November. On Labor Day, Joe Biden touted pro-labor, a bill that would kill millions of jobs, the Washington Examiner points out. And an industry study says that Biden's drilling ban would cost one million jobs and cause $700 billion drop in the GDP. Biden walked back a national mask mandate over constitutional issues. And Kamala Harris told an alleged sexual deviant, Jacob Blake, who was paralyzed in hospital following a police shooting, that she's proud of him. It's interesting during this era, those who are criminals, he is accused of having brutally raped a woman, um, a charge that still stands. And Kamala Harris is proud of him because he, uh, while reaching for a weapon, was shot by a police officer and is now paralyzed. I'm not sure what moral calculus applies here. Biden and Harris preemptively sowed doubt on the Trump vaccine announcement. I'm not sure what good that's going to do. And the guy who stabbed an AutoZone worker two weeks ago because he wanted to kill a white person has now killed his white cellmate. Why on earth they would have put him in a cell with a Caucasian knowing that that's what he wanted to do when he stabbed an AutoZone worker. Well, Rochester police chief and entire command staff have stepped down following the death of Daniel Prude. And the Dallas police chief has resigned after criticism of his department's actions against protesters. Minneapolis City Council is now unlikely to defund police after momentum has slowed on that proposal. And after rolling uh, blackouts, California's anti-fossil fuel regulators voted to, well, let gas-powered plants stay open a few more years. You think you'd think these things through before passing legislation or at least touting uh, your interest in doing so. The Uyghurs are accusing the Chinese communists of mass detention and torture in landmark international criminal court complaint. And Jamal Khashoggi's killers have death have had their death sentences overturned in Saudi Arabia. Five men will now serve 20 year jail terms after the journalists sons pardoned them. Well, the U.S. has recorded less than 25,000 daily coronavirus cases, the lowest count since June. And the president has expanded the drilling moratorium uh, from Florida to South Carolina and Georgia. The president is also withdrawing more U.S. troops from Iraq, where 5,000 plus soldiers are currently deployed. On this day in history, 1776, the Second Continental Congress makes the term United States official, replacing United Colonies. On this day in history, 1850, California becomes the 31st state of the union. 1948, the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, or North Korea, is declared. 1971, prisoners seize control of the maximum security Attica correctional facility near Buffalo, New York, beginning a siege that would end claiming 43 lives. And on this day in history, 2014, Apple unveils its long-anticipated smartwatch, as well as the next generation of its iPhone. 
Well, coming up, we're going to hear a classic interview with April Yamasaki. She's the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care of Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. The book is published by Herald Press. Also, when we come back after the uh, top of the hour, we'll talk with Joel Griffith. He's a research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the ugly truth about socialism by taking a look at some of its myths. All of that coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show in just a few moments. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Now, we often hear the phrase, take care of yourself. But the question is, how do we find the time to do that in today's busy world? Well, for many of us, many of us believers, the idea of self-care sounds contrary to the command of Jesus to deny yourself and follow him. So how exactly do believers balance these two seemingly opposite pursuits? Well, my next guest, author April Yamasaki, she explores this contradiction in Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. The book is published by Herald Press. She draws on the ancient scriptural command to love God with your, uh, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. She helps readers think about the spiritual dimensions of attending to your own needs, setting priorities, finding true rest in a fast-paced world. And she weaves together personal stories, biblical and theological insights, questions for reflection, and the practical ideas for self-care. Four Gifts helps readers sustain their spirits and balance competing demands without adding more items to their to-do list. And I know some of you, like me, are wondering, how is that even possible? Well, April Yamasaki is a pastor, speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living, a member of Redbud Writers Guild. She is the author of Sacred Pauses, and her work has appeared in Christian Century, Canadian Mennonite, and other venues. Yamasaki has more than 20 years' experience as a congregational pastor and leads workshops and Bible studies in denominational and other settings. Four Gifts is her 15th book. She and her husband, Gary, live in British Columbia, and we are delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you, Georgine. Well, this is a, a subject about which many of us struggle, because as you point out in the book, uh, in the introduction, self-care can sound a little bit self-indulgent, um, a self-focused in a way that conflicts with what Jesus calls us to do. How did this subject become Uh, serious enough for you to grapple with that seeming contradiction in order to do what I think is in all of our best interests, and that is to impose appropriate self-care? Well, when my publisher first suggested that I write on self-care, I actually wasn't so sure that I wanted to do that. I had written a blog article about self care because I knew for myself that it was something that I did kind of on my own time. So I thought, yes, I, I need to get a good night's sleep. I need to eat properly, to be well-rested, to be engaged in life and ministry. But one day when I was reading another article by a pastor, and there was all this list of the things that a pastor does besides Sunday morning, the meetings and the hospital visits and so on, and on the list was self-care. And I wondered really a self-care part of my job, part of my ministry too. So I'd written an article about that, and one of the editors at the publishing house contacted me, and she said, you know, this is really an idea for your next book, because we hear about self-care all the time from people in our lives. Um, we, we know that it's important, and yet, how does how do we think about that in a Christian context? Mm. And so that's really what I was interested in. I said, you know, if you're looking for a book that's just about self-care, 
um, I have some questions and some ambivalences about that, and that's the part that I would be interested in exploring. So Four Gifts really became that exploration for myself and for others. How are we to understand that? Mm. I appreciate one of the lines you write, self-care makes my busy week possible. When you think about what it what's required in order to do the things that are important, the things that God is calling us to um, Self-care makes it possible to, over a long period of time, to do that work well and and sustain uh, oneself. Yes. Um, Some people might see self-care, narrowly speaking, as selfish, and it can be that if it's just focused on ourselves. But we can also think of self-care as a form of stewardship, that God Mm -hmm. has gifted us with so much uh, heart, soul, strength, mind, energy, creative gifts, and so on, but how do we care for those and uh, offer them to other people? Yeah, I, I like the uh, the notion that this is a form of stewardship. I, I would imagine the Sabbath rest is an example of that. It is a reminder to us that we are uh, flesh, that we are frail, that we have certain limitations, and yet we live, especially in the 21st century, as if that were not the case, that we can be sustained without the level of maintenance that we even require for the vehicles that we drive. Yes, I think when you talk about creation and work and rest, I see self-care really embedded in that rhythm, Mm -hmm. that it is not uh, that we were meant, uh, we weren't created to just go, go, go without stopping. We're actually created for that rhythm of using our creative energies in work and with great purpose and as God calls us. And at the same time, we are called to rest. And ultimately, uh, that is that is uh, what God has called us to, to rest in Him, not only in using our own energies. You, in the introduction, write about your struggle with self-care. Let's first of all define what it is and why that was a challenge for you as you explored not only how to <laughs> incorporate that on a regular basis in your own life, but to then write about it. Well, I struggled with self-care in part because it felt selfish. And when I look at the world around us, with all of the needs in the world, where people are going hungry, where people are being displaced, uh, where there is great need for justice and reconciliation, um, why then would I focus so much on self-care and center self-care by writing a book about it? So that was, that was one piece of my, my questioning. And then Jesus' call to self-sacrifice and to denial, uh, to picking up our cross and following. Um, how do we understand that if we're thinking about self-care? And some of what I had read about self-care seemed almost trivial. So now let's make time for uh, cloud watching and going to have a massage and uh, that sort of thing, and and some of those things can uh, give us good rest. But if that's all that self-care is, it seemed to be too small. So I, I think I was searching for a bigger vision of self-care that would also include care for community, uh, care for justice, and that uh, would would encourage me also to rest in God's care. Because sometimes I find that the approach uh, to self-care that I see uh, almost suggests that if I could only get better at self-care, then everything would be all right. Mm-hmm. But we are limited, no matter how good I get at self-care, uh, I am still limited. 
and frail and still need to take that time for work and rest because that's embedded in creation and embedded in who we are as human beings. You referenced 1 Peter 5.10 that reminds us that God longs to restore, support, strengthen, and establish us. And there are limits to what we can do for ourselves in terms of that kind of care. So it is a a partnership, and I appreciate you put it in that broader context because we need to recognize the role that God plays in uh, in uh, caring for us. Now, as part of your search for the book, you explore four gifts that are drawn from the words of Jesus to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your minds, and uh, with your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, talk about these four gifts and the framework that you use in the book uh, for gifts uh, for your self-care. Well, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He talks about loving God and loving neighbor as ourselves. And some people in that see a third commandment to love ourselves. He doesn't exactly say it that way. Uh, He says, love God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, almost as if he would assume mm-hmm. some love of self rather than, than giving it the same priority as those other two commands. Um, some of the early church fathers would have said, uh, and have written commentaries on that text and said, well, you have to be able to love yourself. That needs to come first because if it doesn't, you can't love your neighbor. Some of the reformers, uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on that said, no, we are too much full of ourselves. And so loving ourselves cannot come first. Love of God and others needs to come first. And I find for myself, those are uh, the two poles that I find my self-care in between those. But sometimes uh, I am too full of myself and I have to be reminded to love God first and to love others. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I am neglecting myself, so I need to be reminded, oh, and I need to love myself. So it's between those two extremes uh, that I find we we find the place of of self-care that is refreshing. We're talking about the book titled Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. I'm talking with uh, April Yamasaki, the author. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with April Yamasaki. She is a pastor, speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living. Uh, four Gifts is her 15th book. She and her husband, Gary, live in British Columbia. And we're talking about Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. Now, the um, uh, the book that we're talking about, you um, address specific uh, practices that can help us. You offer practical ideas for self-care. Um, and one of the things that you uh, that you say is that sustaining our spirit and balancing competing demands without adding more items to the to do list is possible. And I think that's maybe one of the more most challenging thoughts about the notion of trying to incorporate um, self-care into an already uh, very busy life. Can you talk a bit about that? Give us some hope. <laughs> well, for myself, early on in ministry, I was just so excited to be in a new church and in a new role that I simply said yes to all of the things I was asked to do. So what I like to 
uh, lead this Bible study? Yes, I would. And would I like to serve on this committee for the denomination? Yes, I would. And would I like to be a guest here? Yes, I would. And pretty soon I had this huge pile of yes, yeses that were all wonderful, but it simply became too much. And I realized that I needed to start saying no. And it started me down the path of being more deliberate to say, well, what really has God called me to? Mm-hmm. And where do I need to say yes? And where do I need to say no? And I actually kept a list in my journal. Whenever I would say no, I would write that down. And soon I could look back at that list and say, look, I said no to all of these things. And actually, people pretty quickly went on to somebody else. And and everything turned out fine with someone else taking care of those things and doing those things. And I realized that I, I didn't need to be saying yes to everything. So I find it helpful now to have an I don't do list, just some things <laughs> that I, I don't do. And some of them are very simple. So um, I don't do surveys on the telephone when people call. And I don't do these personality tests that people share with me on Facebook. And for other people, these things may be something they want to do, feel called to do, find fun to do or relaxing to do. And so blessings on them. But those are on my I don't do list. And I find that very helpful. Mm. You know, I so appreciate your saying that because particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ, we're rarely asked to go rob a bank. Generally, everything that we're invited to participate in or to do is something that is good, that it, it has value. Uh, it contributes to the, the kingdom. Um, but we're not all called to do everything that that is brought to our attention or we're asked to do and to have permission to think, you know, maybe I'm depriving somebody else of this opportunity that that's not mine. Uh, and thinking that, you know, I, I really can say no, um, and I need to be listening more carefully to what God is saying that he wants me to do. Exactly. I think of the story of Moses, who was called to lead his people and called to um, be the one who they came to with various uh, things happening in their lives and in their community, and uh, being the one that people went to for counsel and advice. And that was his role. But so many people came that they would line up during the day, and he would do that all day, every day. And his father-in-law looked at that and said, this is not good. And what he, what he advised, his father-in-law advised, is that he would have other people who were wise that would help carry this responsibility. And that was much better for Moses in terms of his self-care it was also much better for those that were able to be called out and use their gift, and it was much better for the community so that they weren't depending Mm. only on one man but could depend on one another as a community. So it was not self-care in isolation of the community, but also good community care. One of the challenges that you've just touched on a moment ago is self-care in a digital world. There are so many opportunities vying for our attention. I can pick up my phone as I'm laying down to sleep and just take a glance at Facebook. And before I know it, 30 minutes has gone by. What are some of the challenges of self-care in the digital world? Well, for some people... It is such a huge draw, and there have been some studies about how uh, something like Facebook even has an effect on the chemicals in our bodies that, that draws us to it. So it's a, it can be a powerful draw. I like to have a social media Sabbath once a week where I just don't do Facebook or Twitter or any of that from Saturday at 6 o'clock at night to 
uh, Sunday at six o'clock at night. And I find for me, that's another way of saying, okay, I don't do that. It's, it's great to be on social media. It helps to connect us with many people. And I think that's wonderful, but it can also be too much. But one of my friends said, but how do you do that? She says, you're just relying on self-discipline. And I said, yes, in a way it is, because I simply say, okay, I don't do that now. Yeah. Uh, We're talking with April Yamasaki. She's a pastor, a speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living. She's the author of the book we're talking about today, Four Gifts. And it is uh, a book that seeks self-care for heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, Let's talk about the four uh, pillars that you write about, heart, soul, mind, and strength. When it comes to self-care, can you talk a little bit about how each one of those four uh, divisions uh, can be practically lived out and how, for example, self-care for one's um, heart, how that plays out in the practical life of a follower of Jesus. Yes, the meaning of the four overlaps somewhat since they work together mm-hmm. and together they represent the whole person. But I, I take heart to represent our total well-being. And in that section of the book, I talk about our core commitments and setting priorities. Uh, the soul represents our spiritual well-being, and I think of Jesus taking time to pray. Uh, The mind represents our mental well-being. I think of of reading and our intellectual stimulation there and mental health, and then strength representing our physical well-being. Now, what what are the consequences? What are the benefits of appropriate self-care in the context of one's uh, community and in, uh, in one's faith? What might we expect as a result of um, appro- appropriating self-care. I find for myself with self-care that I am more grounded when I am able to take care of myself. So that's one of the things that it, it gives you more longevity in terms of your capacity to to just thrive. Yes. Yeah, sorry, Georgine. I, I heard another uh, kind of voice in there, okay. so I'm sorry I paused there. Uh, yes, I find that I am more grounded in uh, how I go through my day, if I am caring for myself and caring for others at the same time. And it's uh, sustainability in in life and ministry, for sure. Mm. Now, in the book, you offer um, some practical ideals for self-care. You also offer some personal stories, some biblical and theological insights, some questions for reflection. How do you see the book Four Gifts being um, read by those who are serious about really evaluating, am I devoting sufficient time to, am I a good steward over the time and the the limitations that I have in this frail human body? I know that some are reading it simply on their own and others find it helpful to read as a group. So I've had a group of advanced readers, some who have simply read it straight through and now they said, now I'm going to read it again and look at the exercises. Or now I want to read it again, but I'd like to do it with a small group. And so that's very helpful for us to support one another as we work at our self-care. Well, we often say to one another, take care of yourself. Um, we mean it, but we may not know how to actually go about that. But the book Four Gifts does provide us with sort of a roadmap and how we might evaluate life as we're living it and how to be a better steward over it. The book, once again, is titled Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind and Strength. The book is published uh, by Herald Press. Uh, April, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And I will tell you, I will incorporate much of what you've written in my own very busy, uh, busy life. Thank you. I hope you will. (laughs) Again, April Yamasaki is the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Kay Cole James, who is the president of the Heritage Foundation, recently published a column that pointed out that 70% of millennials say they would back a socialist candidate for office. And we're seeing socialist ideas gaining traction. Free college tuition for all, government-run health care, and a guaranteed income even for able-bodied people who don't work. She goes on to write that while we can blame some of the attraction to socialism on its false promise of fixing every social ill, the nearly inescapable indoctrination present in our schools and universities and the media who carry its water, some of the blame lies with us, the older generation. We fail to educate newer generations about the myths and realities of socialism. Instead, leaving it up to others who have a very different agenda. Well, Joel Griffith joins us. He's a research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation to talk about the ugly truth about socialism and some of the myths that have been readily embraced, primarily by the younger generation, but not exclusively. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me today. Well, as I mentioned, Kay Cole James uh, recently wrote a column on this subject, pointing out some of the myths of socialism. And I just kind of want to walk through some of them, beginning with this myth. Socialism is uh, has never failed because it's never been really tried. Uh, that, you know, we haven't seen the perfect example of it being carried out. And therefore, those failures represent a failure of applying all the principles of it. How do you address that as a myth uh, to those who believe that if we were to apply it here, we would see a different outcome? Um, well, for the for the simple truth that socialism has been tried, it's been tried over the past 100 years in many different countries and many different flavors across the globe. I mean, of course, we think about think about the real stark examples. Look at Cuba, which is um, one of the most impoverished impoverished countries in the hemisphere, or Venezuela, what they're going through. Uh, they've gone from being one of the most prosperous countries in the world to having 90% of the population living in poverty. But you can look at examples across Europe as well. You know, Great Britain once had a socialist economy, and they were underperforming the United States and many other countries across the world. And uh, they actually jettisoned a lot of uh, those nationalized industries um, back in, in the 80s. Um, same goes for Israel. Israel was founded as a quasi-socialist nation in the 1940s, and they've actually jettisoned a lot of that, uh, that socialist way of life, and they're now one of the most prosperous countries in the world. So we, we've seen these examples, and we have modern examples uh, as well. Uh, but it has not succeeded in a single country in which it has been tried. One of the favorite darlings of uh, socialists is Denmark. Uh, they offer it as a prime example that socialism works. Now, Denmark would beg to differ, but talk about that example that we're often given as the lone example or other Scandinavian countries of socialism that has worked. Well, that's one, one example. People are always talking, at least here, uh-huh. about the Nordic countries. Well, socialism is working in Scandinavia, in uh, you know, Denmark, in, in Norway, in Sweden. Well, the fact is, they're actually, those are not socialist economies. They do have a big safety net, um, and uh, the middle class um, pays for that safety net. There's a there's a basically a national sales tax and high payroll taxes, but the means of production are in private hands, and there's actually very minimal government regulation of the economy compared to the United States. In fact, most people don't know this, but there's actually no minimum wage in the Nordic countries, and it's far easier to open up a business there versus here in the United States. In fact, the Denmark Prime Minister actually once said, he said, quote, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is a market economy. 
uh, end quote. Um, if you look at our Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, you'll actually see that those so-called socialist countries, um, yeah, they're not social. They rank higher than the United States in terms of economic freedom. Yeah, yeah. Another myth is that socialism is compassionate and caring. And that is, of course, if you overlook Maoist China and the Soviet Union. But address that myth, that socialism is a compassionate and caring system. Well, if some of the people that are involved um, on the activist level, they may indeed be caring, nice people. But socialism as, um, as an actual system has been anything but kind and caring. Uh, if you look at the uh, you know, the number of people that have perished as a result of Marxist-Leninism, uh, you're talking about 100 million people that have perished over the years through human-caused famine, through execution. Um, that's in the Harvard Black Book of Communism that has uh, tallied that together. Think about the communist revolution in China in the last century under Mao. Children as young as 12 years old were subject to capital punishment. You had people in forced labor camps. And, of course, you have that still happening in China today. Um, yeah, anything but uh, social. It cares about one thing. It cares about the collective over the mm-hmm. individual. And if that means that individuals are sent away to those camps or individuals have their property confiscated or aren't allowed to pursue their dreams, that's what happens. Mm. Another myth is that socialism places power in the hands of the people. That's the expectation. The reality is something quite different. Yeah, there's a little room for individual empowerment under socialism or for people to engage in their own voluntary transactions or to pursue the education of their dreams. You know, we know what these socialist systems look like. It means that you have to have power concentrated in a political party or, in a, or in a, even in a single leader. An example of that, of course, in the extreme would be North Korea, where Kim Jong-un reigns with an iron fist. We also see that in Venezuela, or even if you travel to Nicaragua, which is a socialist, communist nation still, the socialist nation, if you go there, so one party type of structure. Um, there's very little room, if any, for individual dissent. The power is concentrated in the hands of a few, and it's not in the hands of, of publicly owned businesses. It's in the hands of a political party leadership or in the hands of even just a few uh, dictators. Another of the myths is, is that Karl Marx, um, socialism's founder, was one of the great thinkers of the 19th century who just happened to get pretty much everything wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's right. Um, I, I know you, I, I, I've read um, Scott's uh, Capital by Karl Marx. A lot of us had to read that uh, either on our own or in universities. And sure, it might be some really great sounding prose, but if you look at what Marx actually said and predicted, He's been wrong. It's been 200 years yeah. have passed. You know, he predicted the end of the nation state. Nation states are still with us, thankfully. Um, he predicted private property being rejected or abolished. Um, every single prosperous country on this planet now has embraced the necessity, the importance of private property. And he predicted that the working class would turn into revolutionaries to upend the system and usher in this new age. Well, thankfully, what we have seen happen are that we've seen workers across the world become entrepreneurs and become self-sufficient. He's been wrong each step of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, one of the myths of socialism is that human nature is malleable and it can easily be changed by government edicts. We're starting to see elements of that even now. Um, yeah, this, this idea that we can go ahead and shape human nature or change human nature or direct this human project in the way that a few elites want, um, that just is not possible. And it's for that very reason that every time that you've tried to see a socialism 
push forward and uproot um, really millennia of human development, you've seen it have to be done by force. You had the gulags in the Soviet Union. You have the, uh, the camps that are still in existence across China and in North Korea today. Um, the fact is, uh, this idea of, of, of forcing our human spirit to be subjugated to the powers that be, that goes against the, the very ideas of humanity that thankfully are, that are put into our founding documents, that we have a right mm-hmm. to life, to liberty, to happiness, to private property, rights that come to us from our creator by virtue of us being human, not given to us by the government or anyone else. Those rights are ours. And when you have a government that tries to supersede those rights, that is acting in contrary to human nature. And the only way to accomplish that is to punish the dissenters. Yeah. Well, we are in the midst of a great conflict. And one of the points that Kate Cole James made in her column is that we need to be there to counter the falsehoods that uh, many young people are learning from their professors, from their teachers, from the media, from pop culture, or we're going to lose another generation to this uh, ideology. Uh, we have a role to play in this great conflict. Yeah, I mean, during, um, during the 1980s, uh, a lot of those who are now in their what, 30s and 40s, they were able to see more firsthand what outright communism looked like, or they might have interacted more with people that were newly escaping communism. And I know that's when the Berlin Wall fell. That's when the Soviet Union crumbled. But that's a distant memory for many. And yeah. for those who were in their 20s, so they were born after all of this happened, and they don't really understand the history. They're not being taught the history, and they're certainly not learning it in the public schools, which often are actually teaching them the virtues of socialism. So that's really incumbent upon us, those of us who are younger and have friends, or those of us who are older and have, have children. It's up to us, really, to provide that education, because if we don't engage them and explain to them and encourage them to become curious about what these other economic systems look like, they may never know that truth, and they might end up voting for politicians that will enact the very system that caused so much human misery for many others just a few decades ago. Absolutely. Joel Griffith, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me today. Joel Griffith is a research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump authorized the Office of Management and Budget Director Russell Voigt to ensure that federal agencies no longer hold woke re-education trainings. Well, Memo directs agency heads to cease and desist from using taxpayer dollars to fund these divisive un-American propaganda training sessions, end quote. Well, the White House directive was drafted in response to reports that mandatory trainings told employees in executive agencies that virtually all white people contribute to racism, that racism is embedded in the belief that America is the land of opportunity or the belief that the most qualified person should receive a job or force them to admit they benefit from racism. Well, Christopher Rufo of the Discovery Institute has worked for the past six months uncovering how Marxist ideas crept into our government on the taxpayer's dime. What I've discovered, he uh, points out, is that critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy. His research has uncovered wokeness training programs in the Treasury Department, the National Credit Union Administration, Scandia, or rather Sandia National Laboratories, Argonne National Laboratories, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI. And of course, 
We've all seen uh, more public examples like the graphic about the taxpayer-funded Smithsonian Museum in July, which claimed to identify the nuclear family, Judeo-Christian values, and objective, rational, linear thinking aspects of whiteness. Well, the wokeness training are part and parcel with the civil unrest afflicting our cities. Last year, the New York Times embedded, uh, rather embarked on a massive propaganda campaign known as the 1619 Project to redefine America's founding as irredeemably racist. The chief editor has already noted that it wasn't intended to be history, but it's been embraced as such, and she's rather proud of that. Nobel Peace Prize, anyone? Well, the 1619 Project has ushered in a summer of rioting in America's cities and now suburbs. What began as peaceful protests over police brutality and concerns about lingering racism has given way to looting, to burning, direct assaults on America's most prominent founders, and organized violent assaults on government property and law enforcement officers. As a chronicle of history, the 1619 Project is a failure. Uh, Prominent historians quickly objected to its many errors, forcing a muted microscopic correction, you wouldn't have noted if you didn't know, uh, from the Times. But as a propaganda campaign, the project has found far more success than it deserved, largely because the mainstream media is willing to embrace it to promote any argument, however bankrupt, however inaccurate, uh, which might damage their number one enemy, President Trump. The president has already instructed the Department of Education to investigate how the project has infiltrated America's public schools. And now he's uh, determined to root out the project's Marxist um, propaganda from the federal bureaucracy. The White House memo rightly condemned the wokeness trainings as opposing the fundamental beliefs for which our nation has stood since its inception. The White House memo also disparaged the division and resentment engendered by critical race theory. Instead of celebrating the diversity of race, ethnicity, and religion in America, the doctrine seeks to paint some as evil oppressors and others as innocent oppressed beyond redemption. More detailed guidance will follow, but the memo directed all agencies to identify and make plans to cancel any training or propaganda effort that teaches or suggests either that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country or that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. Meanwhile, black activists have applauded the defunding of this critical race theory training. Project 21 is uh, provides black leadership. It's a network of uh, African-American leaders from across the country, and they and their um, a press release point out that members of Project 21 Black Leadership Network applauded the president seeking to defund all federal trained root, uh, training rather rooted in critical race theory, a radical philosophy uh, promoting the false notion of systematic American racism and pitting races against each other. It goes on from there. So it's being embraced uh, not only by um, woke white Americans, but by African-Americans who reject the whole uh, Marxist ideology. Meanwhile, President Trump and the Pentagon plan to announce a a reduction of U.S. troop levels from 5,200 to about 3,500, a senior defense official says. The coordinated announcement is expected, and the uh, Iraqis are aware of the decision and are on board, according to the official. A senior administration official discussed the drawdown with reporters aboard Air Force One on Tuesday night. On condition of anonymity, the announcement was made today. The top U.S. general for the Middle East said in July that he believed the U.S. will keep a smaller but enduring presence in Iraq. Well, just weeks after helping to broker peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, President Trump has been nominated for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. The nomination submitted by Christian Tybring 
uh, Jed, a member of the Norwegian parliament, lauded Trump for his efforts toward resolving protracted conflicts worldwide. For his merit, I think he has done more trying to create peace between nations than most other Peace Prize nominees, he says. He's a four-term member of the parliament who also serves as chairman of the Norwegian delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Uh, He, in his nomination letter to the Nobel Committee, said the Trump administration has played a key role in the establishment of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. As it is expected, other Middle Eastern countries will follow in the footsteps of the UAE. This agreement could be a game changer that will turn the Middle East into a region of cooperation and prosperity. Also cited in the letter was the president's key role in facilitating contact between conflicting parties and creating new dynamics and other protracted conflicts, such as the Kashmir border dispute between India and Pakistan and the conflict between North and South Korea, as well as dealing with the nuclear capabilities of North Korea. Tybring further praised the president for withdrawing a large number of troops from the Middle East. Indeed, Trump has broken a 39-year-old streak of American presidents, either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict. The last president to avoid doing so was Peace Prize laureate Jimmy Carter. Uh, This is not Trump's first such nomination, you might recall. Uh, The uh, same individual submitted uh, one along with another Norwegian official in 2018 following the U.S. President's Singapore Singapore summit with Kim Jong-un. Japan's prime minister reportedly did the uh, same. Trump did not win and is not expected to to win this time around. In fact, Nate Jackson points out that four American uh, presidents rather have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Will Donald Trump become the fifth? He doubts it. Okay, you can stop laughing now. Of course he won't win, but Trump has been nominated for the 2021 um, iteration of the prize thanks to his brokering a historic peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates last month. The um, Abraham Accord was indeed a peace-bringing endeavor worthy of accolades. Christian uh, Tyberg, a member of the Norwegian parliament, nominated to President Trump, praising his efforts to resolve conflicts worldwide or... Um, Anyone remember when Barack Obama won the prize in 2009 simply for gracing the White House with his presence? Even the committee later regretted that one. Jimmy Carter won the prize in 2002 for, well, bringing peace to the Middle East. That worked out well, but not so much. Woodrow Wilson won the prize in 1920 for the working, uh, rather for working to end World War I and creating the League of Nations. Of course, the way he um, secured the peace led to World War II, but why quibble? In 1906, Teddy Roosevelt was the only Republican and first American ever to win the prize for his work in ending the Russian-Japanese uh, War, uh, though as uh, one of the earliest progressives, his, he, he's uh, hardly what anyone would consider a typical Republican. After all, Ronald Reagan was famously snubbed in 1990 when the Soviet Union's Mikhail Gorbachev won the prize for ending the Cold War. Hmm. Rather, losing the Cold War. And who could forget Al Gore winning in 2007 the prize for hollering about climate change while um, jet-setting around the globe, creating elements contributing to climate change. After Trump's first nomination in 2018, Nobel insider Lundstedt said, I would be extremely surprised if Donald Trump ever received the Nobel Peace Prize. He may say he wants to bring peace to the Middle East or the Korean Peninsula, but he has not accomplished anything, he added, and his policies do not fall into line with the ideas of liberal internationalism. Well, Trump has accomplished plenty, but the folks who control the Nobel infrastructure, like the American media, are globalists suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. The Nobel Peace Prize has nothing to do with real peace. It's an award by and for elitists 
Chardonnay-sipping clubs of extreme leftists, Trump should consider it an honor not to win, which is expected. He most certainly will not win a peace prize. Well, the Trump campaign and Republican um, National Committee raked in $210 million in August, an impressive haul that marks their biggest month to date, though still short of the record-smashing amount Democratic nominee Joe Biden and the Democrats brought in during the same time period. The Biden campaign and Democratic National Committee announced last week that they had brought in an unprecedented $364.5 million in August. A senior Trump campaign official says that the campaign, all told, has raised more than $1.3 billion since the beginning. The campaign's cash-on-hand figure was not clear. Both campaigns are raising massive amounts of money but have very different priorities about how to spend it. In addition to advertising, President Trump's campaign has invested heavily in a muscular field operation and ground game that will turn out to our voters, while the Biden campaign is waging almost exclusively an air war. Trump campaign manager Bill Stipin said in a statement, he added that the Trump campaign will have all the resources we need to spread the message of President Trump's incredible record of achievement on the ground and on the air and define Joe Biden as a tool of the radical left. He went on to tout the president's record. Biden has a, an economic problem that he doesn't want to talk about, but the Biden team spending most of its time and energy on air will continue its campaign again 55 days to Election Day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, last week, a coalition of leading progressive groups gathered on Zoom to start organizing for what they envision as the post-election day political apocalypse scenario. Put together by the Fight Back Table, an initiative launched after the 2016 election to get a constellation of left organizations to work more closely together. The meeting dealt with the operational demands expected if the November election ends without a clear outcome or with a Joe Biden win that Donald Trump refuses to recognize. Now, that's not a scenario that's likely to happen. But my guess is if Donald Trump wins, the left is not likely to accept the outcome. Well, sources familiar with the discussion describe them as serious with a modestly panicked undertone. A smaller session last fall had talked about post-election planning, but those discussions were tabled because of COVID-19. Well, this was the first time that they were bringing the matter to the 50-plus organizations that make up the coalition. To formalize the effort, they gave it a name, the Democracy Defense Nerve Center. Well, over the course of two hours, participants broached the question of what the progressive political ecosystem can functionally do in a series of election scenarios. They started charting out what it uh, what it would take to stand up um, a multi-state communications arm to fight disinformation, a training program for nonviolent civil disobedience, and the underpinnings of what one official described as mass public unrest. And they poured over a report, uh, report rather, from the Transition Integrity Project. It's a bipartisan group formed in 2019 that analyzed various election season scenarios and made clear the type of um, corruption and chaos that potentially uh, was ahead. The potential for violent conflict is high, the report noted. Now, if you were hoping the election would calm things down, uh, that it would settle once and for all what the next four years was going to look like, who was in charge and so on, think again. Some of the hurdles were straightforward. How you occupy expletive, hold space and shut things down, not just on Election Day, but for weeks, explained one source familiar with the Democracy Defense Nerve Center operations. Others are more complicated, like what quick transportation options can be in place 
uh, should poll locations mysteriously close. Others have been simply impossible to plan out, but they're thinking ahead. I don't know what the strategy is when armed right-wing militia dudes show up in polling places, the same source said. This uh, Rittenhouse guy is being lionized on the right right now. If it is being unleashed that you can shoot people and be a hero, I don't know what preparation we can possibly do for that. End quote. So you've got people on the right who are suggesting those on the left are preparing for a violent um, show out if uh, they don't get their way. And you have people on the left who are anticipating a a violent show out on the right uh, to protect the election or to deny the outcome of an election. Now, those involved in this conversation say this um, uh, array of groups has never coordinated so closely on these matters before. And the fact that they were sitting down some two months in advance of the election was a testament to how seriously they take the complications and threats Election Day poses. It is very obvious that Trump is laying the groundwork for claiming victory no matter what, said one. Progressive groups at the end of the day believe in our democracy and constitutional republic but i'll go on and while it's not perfect believe in building upon it and strengthening it and we will fight to protect it from what we truly see as a president who has gone off the rails and taking this country down an authoritarian fascist path end quote and yet for those who have spent considerable time thinking about the civil and political unrest that could come this fall last week's call didn't provide too much in the way of solace the prep work they worry is not happening fast enough so they are preparing for what um, what they believe may happen, uh, while others on the other end of the political continuum are preparing for what they think may happen. And somewhere in the middle is the vast majority of the American people who may find themselves lost in this uh, malaise uh, that is likely to occur. Once again, a reminder that we as citizens of the United States, citizens of the kingdom of God, need to be praying for this country. There are very difficult days ahead. Very difficult days ahead. I think what we're seeing now is just a small foretaste of what we are likely to see in the days ahead, depending on what happens. And I would say either way, what happens in November. Well, yesterday, the police chiefs from uh, Rochester, New York, Dallas, Texas, announced their resignations. This adds to a string of police chief retirements as Democrat city leaders have catapulted uh, kowtow to the Black Lives Matter anti-police systemic uh, racism narrative, which includes calls to defund the police. Defunding is what drove um, Seattle's police chief to resign earlier this month. The great irony is that all of the aforementioned police chiefs happen to be black, further exposing the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement is not about protecting black lives or combating racism. Really, uh, it's uh, serving only as a front for Marxist revolutionaries. In fact, the line is, if you are not Uh, If you're wearing blue, you are not black. So being black is tenuous. It depends on what your point of view is, what you happen to be wearing at any given time, and whether or not you embrace uh, Marxist revolutionary ideologies. Well, in Rochester, the police chief, Laurent Singletary, announced his retirement after 20 years of service, noting that the media reporting surrounding the death of Daniel Prude, uh, who died in March after being taken into police custody, was false and an attempt to destroy his character and integrity. In his resignation letter, he uh, further asserted the members of the Rochester Police Department and the greater Rochester community know my reputation and know what I stand for. The mischaracterization and the politicization of the actions that I took after being informed of Mr. Prude's death is not based on facts and is not what I stand for. 
But Singletary wasn't the only Rochester cop to tender his resignation. And a very clear act of protest against the anti-police sentiments there, being pushed by the leftist agitators and given oxygen by the Democrat city leaders, the Rochester Police Department's entire command staff will also be stepping down. And one of the first casualties of Black Lives Matter's war on police officers is proactive policing, which ironically is the very type of policing that's most effective in preventing crimes from happening in the first place. Proactive policing is uh, what happened or helped rather reduce the rising crime rate in New York City. However, with the increasingly negative views of police, coupled with the fact that many elected officials are quick to throw law enforcement under the bus whenever the police involved shooting or death of a black individual occurs, officers are less likely to proactively engage. Uh, Mike Brake, who is um, uh, writes for National Review, points out that cops are going to keep showing up for work. They're not going to go on strike and parade in front of local police stations with picket signs, but they are going to stop performing the kind of proactive police work that every good cop knows is what really prevents crime. No doubt many already have, end quote. When officers are fearful, not because of the possibility of having to confront dangerous individuals because they do that and they're prepared for it, but because they risk legal prosecution from spineless politicians looking to placate the mob, all Americans suffer. It only adds to the irony of Black Lives Matter's anti-police movement that it discourages minority Americans from entering or remaining in law enforcement to protect and serve their respective communities. Just uh, very discouraging. Well, White House Press Secretary uh, Kaylee McEnany, she defended the president on Wednesday after a book by journalist uh, Bob Woodward claimed that Trump said he knew the coronavirus was deadly but went to great lengths to downplay the virus in public. When you are facing insurmountable challenges, McEnany told reporters in a briefing, it is important to express confidence. It's important to express calm. She was uh, speaking from the White House. He makes clear that he doesn't want to see chaos, by the way, which is the second part of the quote, which you failed to read, referring to journalists who had posed the question. She continued addressing those reporters who had uh, read part of the quote. The president, just days after having this discussion with Bob Woodward, said this from the podium on March the 30th. I do want them to stay calm. We are going to uh, we're going we're doing a great job. If you look at the individual statements, they are all true. Stay calm. It will go away, but it's important to stay calm, the press secretary said. So this president does what leaders do, good leaders. It's stay calm and resolute at a time when you face an insurmountable challenge. Later, Dr. Fauci was interviewed asking whether or not the president had, in fact, uh, uh, lied to the American people or if his statements reflected what he himself had been saying at the time. Dr. Fauci indicated that, yes, the president had not misled the public on anything that he had said uh, to the president. But this is the latest salvo against the president suggesting that he was irresponsible in uh, communicating sufficient panic to the American people back in February. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are in a season that is more contentious than any I've experienced in my lifetime. But as Christians, there is a specific prescription as to why and how we are to approach it. Hey, you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Kent Engel says that Christians are called to approach this election season and every season with grace and mercy. But how do we do this during a contentious political battle? As elections, he writes, grow more complex, we mustn't learn to fight harder, but instead to listen more closely to God's word. 
Wow. Well, each term, our political elections are uh, becoming increasingly polarized and navigating them as a Christian can feel progressively confusing. He writes that now with the Democratic and Republican national conventions over, it brings us closer to the roaring, ripping ties of the 2020 political election come November. It is conventional wisdom that we all start really paying attention to the election after Labor Day and begin to come to conclusions on how we're going to vote and how to make our vote count. For Christians, these critical moments in the election season provide us with another opportunity to allow God to guide our words and our actions and further display the love of God. Imagine that during contentious election. This election season was kicked off highly divisive, maybe far from any other recent election. There is easily more name-calling, more political uh, bashing and agendas posed against each other that consume us in every social circumstance. On a basic human level, we have forgotten how to treat each other with dignity and respect. We have failed to engage in civil debate and rather turn to outlandish, outlandish fits of tweeting, commenting, and hurling hurtful words in the name of politics. For those who identify as Christian, we can easily follow suit to the norms of the election season. We become pros at the game of politics, and all the while, we've forgotten the grace and peace God has called us to live in accordance with. Approaching the upcoming election, we can feel so strongly about our convictions that we forget to consider how God wants us to handle our beliefs. We need to understand why and how we take part in feeding the polarization of current politics. It is vital that we recognize the many ways God's truth calls us to act in this season of division, and all the seasons for that matter. We can be so focused on what we value and believe that we are quick to forget how God has commanded us to treat one another. As Christians, our values are essential to us because of our knowledge of God's love. Our beliefs and convictions are deeply a part of us and our walk of faith. But when protecting these convictions comes at the cost of how we talk, act and react to other people, are we really living in accordance with God's love? Our faith should not cause us to become defensive of our beliefs out of fear, but rather we should remember that God's first call on us is to love. The issues that are at hand grow more complicated every year, and the politics that we struggle to see eye to eye on become more intense. Yet as these elections grow more complex, we mustn't Uh, mustn't learn to fight harder, but instead to listen more closely to God's word. God has called us to approach this very controversial political election in all situations in his grace, with peace and mercy. Notably, as Christians, when we are selecting who will govern our nation, we can become quickly defensive about the policies we choose to stand by. Contrary to how many of us can act, God has called us to more than defending our beliefs. He has called us to respond to everyone with gracious hearts and in mercy. We need to understand how every Facebook post, every Instagram comment and daily interaction can feed the polarization of our nation. And remember our role as Christ followers at the height of this political election. We can and should continue to hold to the values that we believe to be true. But at the same time, we must seek to be agents of God's mercy. By living in a rhythm of forgiveness, being patient with the differences of those around us, and showing respect to those we disagree with, we can better navigate this election as Christ followers and set an example. Selecting a president can often cause us to live in fear of losing our values in in defense of everyone who views the election differently. But it shouldn't. Instead, it should only remind us that Christ has not called us to live out of fear or in defense, but through his love and grace and mercy. 
I wonder if we can set the example of how we respond in this contentious season by speaking the truth in love, by being gracious, quick to forgive, slow to speak, quick to listen, reflecting God's mercy, his forbearance, all of the things that we see uh, in the life of Christ, if we can radiate those things through our interactions with others. Now, I admit it's not something we can muster up on our own. This is what we describe as the life of the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit guides us, where the fruit of the Spirit is what we produce because He lives in us and is working in us and through us. So this is a challenging season for us. We couldn't imagine a more complicated season, I suppose. We've got a global pandemic, uh, which has isolated us from one another. We have a major contentious election, a presidential election, which heightens um, all of the uh, contentions around all of it. We've got major fires that have um, darkened the air in some areas around our state. People are losing their homes. All kinds of things are happening all around us, uh, and the temptation is to simply throw up our hands and give up rather than to cry out to God, to look to his word, and to allow him to not only inform us through his word, but to give us the capacity through his spirit to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That's the challenge for all of us who are Christ followers, and I hope we'll take it up uh, with seriousness. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.